Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today's episode is a special live broadcast from the Bristol Festival of Economics. I'm going to be talking to Helen Thompson and Adam Tooze about economics after COVID. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me talk. Talking Politics in partnership with the London Review of Books. We've got Helen Thompson with us and Adam Tooze. Helen's in London, Adam is in New York. And we're going to be talking about post-COVID economics. So thinking about the world beyond 2020, um, a whole range of things that we can discuss. This is also a live episode, although it will be broadcast in a couple of days, of our podcast Talking Politics. Um, Adam is a regular contributor. Helen and I are even more regular on that. Uh, We're going to take some questions towards the end, but there's plenty that we want to hear from Adam and Helen about. So I think we should probably start with vaccine economics. Um, Adam, you've tweeted a few charts and graphs about um, what the different vaccines might mean. And the focus has been on effectiveness. Those tend to be the headlines. But as you've pointed out, not just about effectiveness it's about production it's about storage it's about supply chains it's about scale where do you think we are with um, vaccine economics well somewhat perversely on account of the surging epidemic especially in the united states we're moving along at a pace really and the perverse connection is that the trials in the in the phase three depend on people in the control group getting sick and it's incredibly easy to get sick in large parts of the united states right now so that, I think, accounts for the rapid you know, influx of news, say, on the Moderna trial yesterday, which they had a lot of cases as well. So they feel quite confident in their claims. I think, broadly speaking, it's a good news story. Folks have been saying that we might have the beginning of a rollout early next year, and that's the latest timeline I've seen anyway, that we get basically rushed approval in December and we start moving to distributing the vaccine in January. But, of course, the question is how many doses will we have available How rapidly will they be able to be distributed? And then the difficult business of actually choosing who gets them in the first instance will start. But broadly speaking, and you see this in the markets as well, the move has been towards the title of, you know, to me, rather optimistic uh, title of our session, you know, know, post-COVID economics and things beyond 2020. That does seem to be the horizon of expectation now. I'll come to Helen in a second. But when you look at the markets, the Dow is at an all-time high, I believe. There's a certain amount of exuberance around this. We, we talked about the markets earlier in the year. What kind of an indicator do you think that is? I mean, there's a lot of, presumably there's a lot of cash out there looking for a home. Is this a really serious indicator of where we might be in six months, 12 months, or is it just current exuberance? Well, I think it's called rotation, basically. So there's a lot of reallocation going on in big portfolios. There were two big imponderables out there 
One of them was the American election, which has not gone as badly in terms of political uncertainty as some people feared. And the other one was whether or not these vaccine trials would come in as positive as they have turned out to be. And those two uncertainties have begun to move off, as it were, the agenda. And so what you then see is reshuffling within the big portfolios. So some of the hedges against COVID risk, like Netflix shares, have, have come off their peaks. And on the other hand, what we've seen is rotation into pharma and biotech. There's also some very subtle and interesting things going on in the relationship between shares and bonds, because bonds were positioned basically for an environment of a perpetuity of long of low interest rates. And that scenario is also being shaken up to a certain degree. If big parts of the world economy return to growth, then holding bonds becomes less attractive. People are going to pile into emerging market investments of various types. That will tend to relieve the price pressure. So prices will come down and bond markets and interest rates will go up. So there's a big reshuffling going on. So there's, as it were, repositioning at the billion, $10 billion level, but there's also repositioning at the trillion dollar level going on in, in relation to this news. We can actually meaningfully talk about something like a vaccine interest rate or an interest rate conditioned on vaccines in a market like the Treasury, 10-year American Treasury market, which is one of the biggest asset markets in the world. So Helen, how do you see it? What do you think the markets are telling us? Well, I think that's the two really interesting things that have that have gone on um, this year. The first of them is is the way in which after the initial financial meltdown in March, and um, I don't think we should underestimate what a financial meltdown that that um, was. It's kind of been forgotten about. Is is that if you looked at it in aggregate terms, that there was a, a share market recovery, and in, you know, at one that was really completely at odds with what was going on in people's actual lives and in the economy. So, you you know, you have surging American unemployment numbers at the same time as you have the S&P 500 continuing to rise in the in the late spring, um, early summer. So that was in some sense, I think, a, a doubling down on the disconnect between the financial markets and the real economy outside energy that you could see that went on after the crash. And yet, if you unpacked it a bit, you could see that the really big beneficiaries of it all were big tech. I mean, that most of the gains were being concentrated in the big five um, tech companies. And then, I mean, obviously, it's a bit too early to tell. But one thing that now seems to be going on is, is sort of tech seems to be losing out and pharma seems to be, we go from big tech to, to big pharma. So actually, in some sense, what we're seeing is kind of like a contest about capital allocation between the really big companies in the world being played out by what happens in the the share markets. Now, to some extent, I think that that was true after 2008 as well. And the big tech wasn't the only beneficiary then. It wouldn't have been possible to have the shale boom in the United States without a lot of allocation of capital in that direction. But I think it's going to be really interesting to see now what the dynamic is. Is It's basically there are sort of structural conflicts in the allocation of capital between big tech that thought it was a big beneficiaries and big pharma that now looks like it's the beneficiaries. It's worth saying, though, that there's a flaw under big tech in that that, um, the election outcome seems to suggest that it's unlikely to be any dramatic regulatory or antitrust intervention against them, which was one of the clouds that was hanging over them. I mean, now I think one's almost tempted to say a Chinese scenario was hanging over them. In other words, as it were, there would be a political regime shift in Washington, which which would really threaten the platform business model. And that seems less likely. So I think there are sort of countervailing tendencies within the tech investment equation, but it can't be exaggerated. I mean, I think 25% of the total value of the S&P 500 is now accounted for by five stock. So 
when we say there was a stock market boom, it's in a sense a sort of distorted image of what's going on in business in general, because the index captures the growth of the favoured groups by definition, right? And it pushes non-favoured groups out of the index systematically. But do you think we can know already that the Biden administration is going to back off big tech? I think the pol- the politics are just not looking easy, right? Because you would need a because you'd of need the a, Senate. Yeah, you'd need a bipartisan coalition on a quite business hostile. You know, it would essentially be a left policy, and it's very difficult to see how that would happen unless it was motivated by the kind of Republican anti-liberal Silicon Valley sentiment. But those make for rather uneasy bedfellows. Yeah, that that is a weird coalition. If if Biden can stitch that together, he can do anything, and then we're in a whole new world. I think the crucial thing, though, is is like you wouldn't expect the the Democrats with the ticket that they put together to be anti big tech in any shape or form. I mean, look at all the money over the years that Kamala Harris has taken from Silicon Valley in campaign donations. If the Democrats were going down that line for economic reasons, in terms of concentration of ownership, basically antitrust reasons, they would have had Elizabeth Warren as the candidate, and she wasn't even the more effective of the two progressive candidates in the on the Democrat side and meanwhile in terms of the thing that people on the left have wanted the big tech to do in relation to American politics which is effectively to exercise some censorship over the right then the big tech companies obliged them you know during the latter part of the election in relation to issues to do with Hunter Biden so I I don't really think that you would expect to see anything in terms of a radical agenda from this version of the Democratic Party in relation to big tech quite quite the contrary. Adam, I remember when we had you on before and the first time we Helen raised Hunter Biden and you said, do we have to talk about that? So let's not do <laughs> Hunter Biden, not now. Um, to go back to what Helen said, there's still a disconnect here and it's to do with what time frames we should be thinking about in relation to COVID, post-COVID economics. The numbers in the United States are rising and they are potentially still terrifying in parts of the country and maybe for the whole country. You know, it's a dark winter, as people keep saying. And there's light at the end of the tunnel to mash together two mixed images and cliches. How should the Biden administration think about the timing of the kind of work it needs to do to think about the world for its four years or longer, given what it has to get through to get there? I mean, how the winter it has to survive or that its population has to survive. I don't think that's an easy question to answer at all. And that's why I was a little taken aback at first by this optimistic framing of post-COVID economics, because the epidemic in the United States right now, even allowing for the fact that we couldn't test effectively in the spring, is looking absolutely terrifying. I mean, there were 185,000 new positive tests last week. In certain parts of the country, ICU capacity really is reaching breaking point. We, We haven't had to deal with an epidemic on this scale before in the US. Hospitalization numbers are higher than they were at the peak. And we've got Thanksgiving coming up and, you know, 10 million plus people are likely to travel around the country. And that's, I think, a low side estimate, further creating, you know, hotspots of infection. And we see absolutely no, apparently no desire on the part of the Trump administration, in fact, rather the opposite, right, to to do anything about this or to contain it effectively. So I think it's a matter of weeks, days, seat of the pants, flying in the dark scenario very much through to the moment that they actually effectively do gain the reins of power. And by that point, given the exponential logic of of these kind of diseases, it could be completely catastrophic. So I think in New York, where right now the numbers are quite good, we're all just anxiously waiting for 
a big outbreak to occur. And, and then, as we all know, it's incredibly difficult to contain. So I th have we no idea, really, and I don't think they do either, about when they will be able to move from immediate crisis management, which may be the order of the day, and which will require incredibly contentious politics right from the word go, and which the GOP will no doubt just ruthlessly exploit for their own culture war purposes. You know, when they can move out of that mode into some kind of normal government, I don't think we know. And presumably the option is not there, the FDR option in 32-33, where between winning the election and being inaugurated in March, he just sat it out. I mean, he just told Hoover, you own this, because he wanted to make a fresh start. Biden's in that slightly nightmarish position where, in a sense, he owns it already. There's not a lot he can do. Trump, it, Trump is abdicating responsibility. I mean, what, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a difficult couple of months for Biden. I thought, can we no? Like, let's r r hype this up a little bit. It's, it's a nightmarish situation. Okay. I mean, because because they need to do stimulus sooner rather than later, right? The, the whole logic of the economic crisis management is about time. The scarring over the winter in the small business sector is going to be devastating unless they're able to put together a stimulus. You're currently at the mercy of McConnell, who's come back stronger from these elections. The Georgia seats are undecided. Because the Georgia seats are undecided, they're doubling down on the denial strategy because you've got to prove your fealty to Trump to bring out the base. You know, Pelosi and, and the Biden team have to decide whether or not they're going to take some essentially miserably inadequate compromise with McConnell now in the hope of minimising the real economic damage, but of course, prejudicing all of the choices they would then need to make after the 20th of January, whilst potentially stoking major dissension within the democratic ranks between the ambitious left wing and the folks in the centre. I mean, it's, you know, it's as though Obama 2010 was telescoped into Obama 2008, if you like, or rather, Obama 2009 yeah. was telescoped into Obama 2011 in the midst of a public health crisis, which in its dynamism is so much more aggressive even than the financial market crisis in some respects, right? I mean, that once we've been through Lehman, after that, it was a matter of managing the big banks. This is more dynamic than that. Yeah, so we're not post-COVID. Uh, but we'll come on to the longer-term issues. Helen, do you, how much room do you think Biden has? Not Where much. is his leeway? I don't think that, that, that he has much at all for the reasons that Adam says, but also because I think that you know, we, we have to face the likelihood that the situation which exists right now, where the Republicans are going to control the Senate so that the Georgia elections aren't going to make a difference. Uh, is you think we should assume that? I think that. it's better to start from that assumption rather than not, and then, then if it work turns back. out not to be the case... <laughs> work forward. We have a big party. <laughs> so you are going to have a situation where it isn't only the case that the... Democrats in the White House are going to have a hard time getting what they want through Congress. The fact that they're going to have such a hard time is going to divide them. It's really going to, it's going to pull apart the already fragile Democratic coalition because we're not even just talking about a Democratic coalition that's the old, if you like, divide within internally within the Democratic Party. It's also got the Never Trumpers added into it who are wanting going to want something quite big changing on the geopolitical front from Biden um, as well and I, I don't see there's anything that can be done in terms of of an economic stimulus that can really satisfy both sides of the Democrat coalition and then you've got to I think factor in the fact of what's going on in state level politics including the state of you know, New York which probably is going to want some federal support for the economic difficulties that both New York City and New York State are in, and that's going to be a pretty difficult thing 
for Biden to do. He's got to try to hold together a presidential electoral coalition that was won by winning back the Midwest and probably adding Georgia to it. That doesn't make the old centres of the Democrat coalition the place where he's going to have to be most politically responsive to. So I find it very difficult to see how decisions can be made that don't most of the time make all those coalition management problems worse. And and, 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 and that's before you get into how you then balance off the, the fact that the never Trumpers are going to want something in geopolitics from Biden that is also going to antagonise the more progressive wing of the Democratic coalition. And the one thing they could all agree on was fiscal policy, right? If there, if there was one way of squaring this circle, it was a great big stimulus, two trillion plus. And that's the one thing that the Republicans can take off the agenda. So once that's off, all of the trade-offs after that are actually really hard. And, you know, as they migrate policy into the zones of regulation, administrative action, the divisions between the Democratic Party centre and left wing become more and more grievous. Green New Deal type visions, two trillion plus, you can satisfy every constituency and with various types of spending. And I think that easy, that easy sell has gone away. Okay, but I'm still going to push the post-COVID scenario. So it is a nightmare, it clearly is. And yet, if you're Biden, you must be thinking about the four years in the round. And there's a possibility, you know, the the German scientists behind the, the Pfizer vaccine have said next winter is back to normal. So say that were true. Say you've got a very difficult six months and then you can start thinking about a new normal, but the options that those open up. How would and should... Biden administration think about the upside of coming in with the vaccine on the horizon with at least it possible to think about a summer and then a fall and then a winter where the situation is not as grim as it is now does it open up options I mean otherwise they're just going to get bogged down in in the two-month nightmare and they'll never get going how should they think medium term I mean I think one issue which they've promised to move on is climate and um, I mean, there was a fascinating interview with John Podesta, who's one of the powers behind the scene in the centrist wing of the Democratic Party in the FT today. And you can see the direction that it's headed in, which is the second term of the Obama administration. So it's administrative action at various levels, sharpening those administrative regulations. And then, of course, you end up in a trench warfare with the courts. But let's stay positive. Those are the first moves. And then the other angle of attack will be foreign policy and it'll be a recommitment to Paris and, you know, re-engaging in climate diplomacy. But I think under radically changed circumstances, right, because now America really is the laggard in the train of towards carbon neutrality announcements, at least, that the Europeans and the Chinese and now the Japanese and South Koreans have all launched and set their sights on horizons 2050, 2060, to which America can really not credibly commit because of the division of powers problem. But I think that would be that would be one of the areas where folks will expect them to move. And of course, it's an insistent demand of the Democratic Party left uh, that they move on that. So that would be one area where I'd expect them to go. I think that we should separate out the speed with which the health crisis might improve from the speed with which the economic crisis might improve. It's very difficult, I think, to see how any economies are coming back very quickly from this without being put on essentially perpetual support of the kind that they have been on for the the last since March there is a risk that as soon as the health situation gets better that there will be a move to withdraw that economic support and what we're going to find I think is is that lots of jobs are are not going to come back particularly in this in the service sector in um, countries there are too many 
habits that people have in their lives that involved movement including commuting that are not going to go back to the way in which that they that, that they were before and that cannot but be economically disruptive and cause significant levels of unemployment i think I find it very difficult to see, even if we get to a better position in the medium term, I find it very difficult to see how we don't have to go through an unemployment crisis in Western economies. And we're not even at the moment engaging with issues in developing countries. So that is going to make the politics everywhere pretty tough. And it's going to mean that the hard choices in terms of which sectors you might try to bring back not only have to be made and they're going to be difficult, but they're going to be politically divisive as well. I think on the question of of climate and Biden is, is you've really got to try and think through as well what he's going to do about China more generally. Is he essentially going to stick with the position where trade's concerned and essentially technology's concerned, high-level manufacturing competition, that Trump and Congress during the Trump years took the United States too. And in one sense, it's going to be quite difficult, I think, for him to move away from that. On the other, I think it's going to be pretty difficult to move on climate without having a more accommodating relationship with China. Taking climate seriously, again, for the US requires some kind of detente with China, but I don't actually see how the pieces move to get to detente with China, because I think moving away from the positions that Trump took up. You can change the tone of it. You can change some of the, not just the tone of the rhetoric, but the rhetoric rhetoric itself. But are they really going to go back to a position where they don't treat China as a strategic economic rival? Not just an economic rival, but a technological rival. I find that I find that hard to believe. And indeed, in the very things that we might think are attractive about the Green New Deal, is, is that is essentially, in many ways, a national manufacturing project, as well as it being a climate project and for it to be a national manufacturing project that means confrontation with China because China is at the centre of renewable energy manufacturing so these are really difficult issues for the Biden administration to find a coherent way through. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's a lot there, Adam. I want to unpack it and go back and then get your take on each of them. So to go back to what Helen started off by saying, so calling this post-COVID economics is not just an optimistic spin, because Mm -hmm. there is a question about what, when the health crisis Mm -hmm. is over, has been irreparably changed, possibly even damaged. Do you share Helen's sense that in a way the the end of the health crisis might reveal just how widespread the, the some of the structural economic changes and how difficult adjustment might be? I was really struck by the the difference in perspective here because it's clearly true, if you just look at the numbers, it screams out at you that the unemployment crisis that Helen alluded to has not yet arrived in full scale in Europe because of the effectiveness of short-time working. But of course, we've been living it as a literally daily reality here since March. I mean, 
you know, the, the Thursday morning, 8.30 a.m. release of the latest figures for the number of people who signed up freshly for unemployment benefits have become a ritual of American political economic commentary. And we're, we're in the middle of an unemployment crisis in the United States, which is watched as a matter of concern daily. And the numbers recently have been trending in the right direction. So at least in that regard, though I share Helen's, as it were, worries about the service sectors that are most severely affected that story is playing out in real time simultaneously in the United States. I agree in Europe, the chronology looks very different. And one of the big questions for the weaker Eurozone economies and the UK as well is how long by means of government support measures you can contain the social crisis really, because it goes beyond an economic problem at this point, given the sort of shocks that the US labour market has suffered anyway. How long you can contain that that social crisis? So that's one issue. America's already facing it. That's not a reality coming down the pike. Um, it's already here. And so far, it has to be said, the recovery is quite, as we saw over the summer, the bounce back was quite rapid. People are irresponsible enough to want to go and do tourism and eat out in restaurants quite quickly. And because those are precarious, easy come, easy go jobs, they also return quite quickly. Another huge piece of the labor market hit in the United States perversely was in the health sector. <laughs> and that will bounce back very fast. I think it was the single largest source of job losses early on because, you know, dentists and all other doctor's offices shut. So those bits will come back. But we will be well off where we were. And, you know, 2010, 2011 type of levels of unemployment for the US, which is the level of unemployment which generated the preoccupation 10 years ago now with the inequality problem. So there will be a manifest social crisis. But do you think that there are some things that might not come back? I mean, Helen mentioned commuting. I mean, there must be some changes which are going to stick. I mean, we won't be doing Zoom meetings for the rest of our lives, but some changes, or maybe we will, but some, some changes are going to stick. I, I think that's true. We just don't know the scale of that yet. If you look at China, it hasn't turned out to be that way in China on a dramatic scale. So for most of the big Chinese cities now, there is maybe a slight downward deflection in urban commuting rates, but it isn't the collapse we've seen in New York where we're 60% off. But then who in their right mind would get into the New York subway system given the levels of hygiene that it's able to maintain on an ordinary day? You'd be crazy to, and most people have found ways of working their way around that. I mean, I have students, I'm sure you do as well, who are like teaching and living in Shanghai, and they say it's completely normal there. So... You know, there is a scenario in which we get back to something like that, though I'm sure it'll take several years. And the question, of course, is scarring, right? So even if in the long run we have a bounce back, the attrition, I mean, I don't know what it's like in the UK, but in, you know, walk up and down any Manhattan street and it's just one shut, closed restaurant or shop front after another. Most blocks, I think, are mainly shut now at this point and that we're not even in the worst case scenario. OK, then climate and China. Yeah. Switch to Helen's other point. Yeah, so yeah. how do you see that connection? I think my view has shifted a little bit because I understand exactly where Helen's coming from. But I think I would say my, my simply as a result of the unilateral action by China. I mean, what Beijing has basically said, what she said on the 22nd of September is we're not waiting for you and we're not going to haggle with you. We are basically going to set a timeline for decarbonisation by 2060. And that's hugely ambitious for China. Um, and imposes massive internal domestic political economy stress right now, right here, right now. And they have to do it quickly in this coming five-year plan because otherwise they're, they're really stuck. And I think that has really bewildered and rather left the Americans flat-footed because having spoken to people who will be around the Biden climate team, they all expected 
they were going to have to negotiate. And the big, as it were, move would be America delivers and then China's brought on board. And Biden, in fact, wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs, which many people are quoting right now, which argued precisely in those terms. And it's all a little bit kind of obsolete because China's moved, Japan's moved, Korea's moved, Europe's moved. The Americans are the sort of leading from behind, literally, insofar as they're leading at all. I think, in fact, right now, and there are Republicans who are trying to do this, to take you know Helen's point directly, who are selling especially e-mobility, like you used to sell sensible energy, oil and gas policy, as a national security strategy directed against China. In other words, one of the ways of building sustainable bipartisan support for, say, battery subsidies and things like that, is to sell them as a national security play, America's strategic autonomy. So I think there's a shifting terrain here in which those old antagonisms and old alignments may be different. But but it's a moving terrain. And I completely agree with the basic sense of Helen's point, which is that deciding what America's strategic posture towards China is and then figuring out the wider ramifications of that is a, is a huge challenge for the Biden administration. I think industrial policy may be one of the easier dimensions of that, though. So can I ask about the connection between climate and COVID? Because people have speculated quite a lot about whether there are lessons we can learn from how governments have reacted to this challenge for how they might react. Uh, Paul Krugman's got a particularly gloomy piece in the New York Times today saying the lesson from COVID, partly he thinks because it wasn't a big enough factor in the election, though I think Helen differs on that. But, you know, that a government can screw up on this monumental scale and somehow get away with it. And that should make us seriously worried about electoral pressure on governments to move on climate. The other view is that we've seen governments react quickly. We've also seen industry and the private sector adapt to the vaccine challenge pretty quickly. You know, the magic money tree is there when you need it. You know, the money is wasted, which is what you need. You know, you throw money at the wall and see what sticks. It's It's got a kind of wartime feel to it. Do either of you think that there's, from the COVID experience, a lesson for how we might adapt and and might actually be more flexible than might have been thought to the climate challenge? Or do you think it's the Krugman story that if this is how we deal with this, God help us with the big one? I think that the interesting thing is that if you go back to late February and you said that every European government and the United States and Canada were going to do the things that they did in terms of shutting their economies down, and essentially participating in bringing mass air transportation to an end. We would have been, what? Yeah, it would have just been uh, utterly, utterly inconceivable. So I I think that the first thing we have to do is recognise that we have this year gone through something as a world in some sense that was beyond our imaginations in the West at the beginning of this year. And it involved doing the thing that one way of thinking about the climate change issue, which says that actually we can't carry on with the material living standards that we have been used to in Europe and North America without doing huge ecological damage to the planet and ultimately risking ourselves, our own being, that it has been shown that actually big sacrifices can be made, big economic sacrifices, people will adjust People will change the way in which that they live. Now, obviously, there's deep questions about how long that they are willing to do this, but I would still suggest that they, even if if someone had said to us 
when we were three weeks into lockdown in this country, I can't quite remember when you went into lockdown, you know, Adam, that we would be back in lockdown like this in the late autumn. I know this lockdown this time around is not like what it was last time that, but there's still, I think my instinct would have been, they won't do that again. People won't tolerate it for that long. But the fact of the matter is, is that this is what we've been through. And so that seems to me to sort of change the way in which we need to think about the, the climate change um, issue now. That doesn't mean that we've got a, a remedy to it, which simply says, OK, we all adjust to a lower level of economic activity. Because, as I say, I think that we are yet to see, particularly in Europe, the consequences of the economic damage that we have wrought upon ourselves by doing um, this and the consequences that that economic damage has for people's health, for people's emotional, mental well-being, um, et cetera, and et cetera. But I, I do think it should change the way in which we think about our ability to adapt to climate because what looked like it was unimaginable turned out not to be the case. But that cuts straight into what Adam was talking about, about what we've learned from China, which is Shanghai is back to normal. I mean, if Shanghai is back to normal, then this is a short-term but, thing. It's not, you know, the, the long-term change that would be needed is not a lesson we can draw from But that. Shanghai was never, didn't go through what we went through. Sure, but... It still suggests that the you know the new normal is the old normal, isn't it? Isn't that what people aspire towards? It does, but it, I think it just changes the fact that it, it changes the ways in which you, we can think about what collectively politics can withstand. Hmm. I really wanted to hear Helen speak first because I have such admiration for her materialism, right? Her search for arguments in terms of interest. And and to hear her saying that for me is is a huge relief because I to me exactly as she's saying and formulating incredibly clearly it's been an incredible shock a huge surprise a huge sort of cognitive disorientating experience because exactly as she formulated precisely in those terms I would have said the same thing we could just simply not have imagined this well, how else to call it, this form of agency that I just don't think that we, we thought we had and, that, and the, the mere thought that we didn't have it constrained the conversation. I mean, th- think about the reaction to Extinction Rebellion, which after all posed precisely this question last year. And I take your point also, though, David, that as it were, this isn't, this has limits. There's a snapback. It's a snapback, of course, very deliberately encouraged by the Chinese regime. So they pushed society back in this direction. And people, of course, flowed as well. But it's that discovery of that agency per se in and of itself, which I think is the, you know, it's the historic shock of 2020. We simply didn't think we could do anything like this in any circumstance outside war. And we have. And of course, it's hodgepodge and messy and it doesn't necessarily last. And if you've got really, really bad politics in many parts of the world, very bad leadership, then, of course, it becomes harder to do. But the question for me is, as it were, why was it possible for COVID, granted that it was with all of the qualifications, and why have no less, in a sense, alarming forecasts and predictions yielded essentially a sort of collective shrug of the shoulders with regard to climate. That, for me, is the big puzzle and the puzzle that has sort of set back. And I think, you know, there are a variety of different reasons one could offer, more or less materialistic. It could be a question of who it is whose lives are at risk, which I think is a little reductive. You know, there's a simple answer which says, well, when rich people suddenly discover they can die of infectious diseases too, then suddenly everything shifts. 
you could argue that it's, you know, in the end, some sort of there are these social reproduction theorists, so-called, who basically argue that, in fact, this is really an effort to sustain the labour force of capitalism, you know, which also seems to me grotesquely reductive. To me, in my mind, it's revealed to us there are a series of mechanisms and institutions that at some point do prioritise, as it were, if not life, then at least, as it were, the regularity of life and death. This is just not something we expected to die of, and that's very shocking. So it's not flu, and that's the point. Hence the effort to constantly wrap it back into the flu paradigm, which turned out to be futile and counterproductive. And of course, climate change doesn't have that apparatus, and that's really what we've got to wrestle with. And it may not be possible to cast it in those terms because it's very long range. It's actually an incredibly diffuse risk for the majority of people who aren't in Bangladesh or somewhere like that, where the risk is immediate and intense and very material. It doesn't involve death immediately. It certainly doesn't involve dying, you know, gasping for breath in the full glare of a of a smartphone, which is, after all, these are the images that really brought the crisis in upon us in March. So there are, I think, really quite fundamental differences between the different types of threat, which ultimately explain the reaction. But I'm with Helen. I mean, the first thing is just a sort of gasping disbelief at a logic that I didn't didn't understand. Stop me in my tracks writing a climate change book. <laughs> it's like, okay, like, you know, game over. We need to think about something else for a moment. <laughs> I think it also goes, in some sense, deeper than that. Even what Adam's saying is, is because it isn't just. I mean, I could be a bit careful what I say here, but it isn't just that we've done this for an unbelievably unprecedented infectious disease. Yeah, we've done it for something that, on the scale of like, let's just say, make a comparison like with 1918, the Spanish flu. It doesn't compare. It's not a killer. So it, is, it, uh, it doesn't kill children on the whole, or very rarely kills children. So this is, this is a, a monumental response to something that if you had a very long time scale that you're looking at, I'm not saying it doesn't register, that would be an absurd thing to say, but you, that there are imaginably worse pandemics than what we've been through, and yet we still, and yet we still did this. And I think that one of the things is interesting. I've been trying to think about why, why is it the case that it's quite hard for those people who want to say, look, we're letting a lot of other illnesses go untreated and that the death toll there might actually be very considerable, you know, like in the end. Why is it so hard for that argument to get made? And I think partly it is is because of the nature of democratic politics, perhaps, and the way in certainly which the media works in, in our societies made it very quickly into this is the nightly death toll these are the nightly cases, this is the nightly death toll. Anything that's more diffuse than that, that isn't going to be counted. So the people who are going to die of cancer because they weren't treated over the last, or diagnosed over the last six months, they are just not going to register ever in the same way in which the people who have died of COVID are are going to. And I think that climate might be something in where it's even more diffuse than being able to say, you're not not going to have the nightly news being like, okay, there's X more floods in this place than there was five years ago, and more people have died because of air pollution whatever so it's the way in which it was turned into a catastrophe in some sense early on that perhaps explains why what seemed unimaginable became the response to it this is why i ended up going back to the you know sociology of the 1980s because it seems to me that this these are the sorts of phenomena highly mediatized diffuse threats that then acquire huge salience and create a, a situation where Somebody, you know, as clear thinking as Helen has to pick very carefully around the arguments because we all know where the political footfalls lie, right? When you end up 
making a certain sort of argument, you suddenly sound like essentially a COVID denier. And so we've all found ourselves in this situation of extraordinary politicization around something which I agree with Helen, you know, on any historical measure and by comparison with disease X fantasies that circulate in the epidemiological community, this is really not the worst case. So it's absolutely phenomenal and it requires such an effort, I think, of the detachment to manoeuvre ourselves to a position of being able to think about the reaction rather than constantly adjudicating and arguing and squabbling with each other about the relative merits of one response rather than another. For me, the, the, the remarkable thing remains that, as according to the ILO, in early April, 80% of the global workforce was in some form of disrupted or shut down labour relation, and 1.4 billion young people were furloughed from education. F hands down, flat out, the most extraordinary thing to have happened in modern economic history. We do have to permit the question of why, rather than simply foreclosing it by saying, well, it was the right thing to do, obviously, you know, and, and shh. Stop asking the question. Like that is a radical event that has to be has to be uh, explained, and I think will preoccupy social scientists till kingdom come. And Adam, as you reminded us at the time, a lot of that behaviour was voluntary. So you know we're fixated on the ways in which states mandated it, but the lag is people did it before states told them to it, and they stopped doing it before uh, states allowed them. Such an unhelpful liberal versus conservative free market construction of what happened. The IMF has cashed it out in quantitative terms. They are convinced that 60% of the reduction in mobility, because they can do fancy econometrics on the Google mobility number, 60% was, as it were, human-induced rather than government-induced. People chose to do it, which of course is not... It's not individuals because it's a mediatized reality, as Helen was saying, like people got word, but it has a whole political economy. We forget trade unions bargained with employers over this in the automobile sector. It was a classic collective bargaining problem to shut down. So in the, in the process of politicization, it's become a oppressive state versus, you know, innocent civil society type story, which is just which is well, it's fighting talk. Right? That's what it is. And it shouldn't be understood as a proper analytic. So I'm going to come to some of the questions we've been asked, but I just want to ask one more. So the other side of this, so COVID's revealed something about human behaviour, about our priorities, about how we receive and internalise information. But there's also the innovation story. So there was a, you know, a fairly pessimistic take on the vaccine even a month ago. You know, I would hear people, doctors and others saying, this is pie in the sky, you know, this takes far longer than people think. It's far more erratic. It's, you know, this is not a silver bullet, magic bullet, whatever it is. And it is, you know, it's, it seems at least that if you really throw money at a problem and get on with it and prioritise it. And there is at least some grounds for hope there on the other side of the climate story, you know, innovation, it, it, re it requires a real impetus, you know, an incentive, but people can do amazing things if you give them the right incentive. But I would put that even further, right? Because when we say we've spent real money on the vaccine, we haven't, it's peanuts. Operation Warp Speed's budget is $10 billion. In the broader scheme of things, $10 billion is like a rounding error in American GDP. The really puzzling thing is that our pipelines aren't big enough, right? We've got a multi-trillion dollar, globally scaled, $10 trillion problem. And the maximum amount of money apparently we could currently usefully spend on all known vaccines that would push them to phase three trials is about $130 billion which is like, you know, a fifth of the American F-35 fighter program. So if we actually cared about these kind of risks, we would have a standing capacity to do vaccine development at warp speed, ready at all times. 
And as you say, David, it's, it, it, it wouldn't even cost us the kind of money that we habitually talk about, either when we're talking about energy policy, let alone, you know, bank bailouts or things like that, which pop up to the hundreds of billions just like that. Warp speed, America's program, $10 billion. It's peanuts. So we, we could, if we actually were minded to build a true resilience capacity that was founded on the massive mobilization of human innovation, uh, we haven't even started yet. We literally have not begun to spend the kind of money that we would need to do to really be able to say we were in earnest about this. And that's one of the ways in which this is therefore not like war, because one of the marks of 20th century wars is that you do spend on that scale, right? And we're not there, nowhere near We're in that. the early phases. This is the kind of business as usual phase where you don't, it's the phony war. You don't, we haven't really quite understood what this is going to involve. Yeah. Helen, do you, do, you, do you think we've learned anything about innovation in the last six months? Yeah, I mean, I'd be a bit more sceptical on this score because I think that, that technological innovation in relation to a vaccine and technological innovation in relation to energy are entirely, you know, like different different questions. You know, the vaccine isn't up against the laws of physics. Energy is. And so that, that isn't to say that there isn't technological innovation that can get us some weight on climate. But I do think that people, what you need to understand is, is that right now is the technology doesn't exist in any form that could realise these um, commitments to carbon neutrality by 2050, 2060. That requires a technological leap that hasn't been made. Now, I'm not saying it can't be made, but I think that I would be sceptical about the idea, shall we say, that it's just a simple case of like mobilising as much money as possible and throwing it at the problem. Yeah. <laughs> I, you just can't start unless you do throw the money. So throw the money first and then worry about the other stuff. But it was just this, this is to David's point of like, we tried. And my point is, we, we're still not trying enough. As always, you can find links to our past episodes with Adam when we were talking about COVID back in the spring in our show notes or follow us on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. We've got one extra episode this week. This one comes from the Cambridge Literary Festival, where I'm going to be talking to the author and radio presenter James O'Brien about being right, being wrong, and just being argumentative. Next week in our regular slot, we're going to be talking about voting and participation. Do join us for all that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. 